0: Thank you, Ms. Kelly. Beautiful job. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter number 16. Again, special Happy Mother's Day to you this morning. Well, you'll notice in the bulletin that over the last few years that we have stopped giving you the, the little token uh, bookmark or whatever. And for those years, we've been making a donation in your name, and this year will be making a donation in your name to the Life Choices Pregnancy Center and the Guatemala Children's Home. And we certainly hope that you have a blessed day. We are grateful for all the women in our lives. Otherwise, how would us men know when we were wrong? We didn't know, we didn't have a woman to tell us it was wrong. (laughs) I'm on the edge, yeah. Well, my wife's sick this morning because I can say anything I want to. It gets back to her and then it'll be a different story. I'll read you something that Emma, Irma Bombeck wrote. It's entitled to Unappreciated. Sometimes we forget how important stability is to a child. I've always told mine the easiest part of being a mother is giving birth. The hardest part is showing up for it every day. Mother's Day is traditionally the day when children give something back to their mothers for all the spit they produced to wash their dirty faces, all the old gum they held in their hands, all the noses they wiped, and all the bloody knees they made well with a kiss. This is the day mothers are rewarded for washing all those sheets in the middle of the night, driving kids to school when they missed the bus, and enduring all those athletic events in the rain. It's appreciation for making your children finish something that they said they couldn't, not believing them when they said, I hate you, and sharing those good times and their bad times. Their cards probably won't reflect it, but what they're trying to say is, thank you for showing up. And I will add, thank you for not giving up. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we want to thank you for this day that we have. And we are in deep appreciation for all the women in our lives and all that mothers do. But we also recognize that as joyful as Mother's Day be for some, it is also a time of some grief as well. For those of us whose mother has already passed, we we miss our mothers. And so today is a special day that we remember that absence. We also realize that it's a special day for those mothers who've lost a child. They saw a child who... Did not have the opportunity to grow up, but at the same time we 're grateful that when they open their eyes that they 're going to see Jesus, that when they hear they 're going to hear the angelic angels rejoicing, and the first thing they 're going to see is the face of Jesus, Father, we also recognize that uh, it's a hard time for those women who have not been able to bear children, but would have loved to do so. And so, mixed with this time of joy, there is also some sadness for others, and help us to, rem- to remember that and to reach out to those that we know and love. We ask for your guidance and direction in our service today as we look into your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Luke chapter 16, verse number 1. Here we have a story of a middle-aged man who's in trouble with his boss. He has helped himself to his employer's funds one time too many and now he's facing the music. In fact, he's been told to clean out his desk. He has given a few days to clear up all of his accounts but he knows that after that is finished, his job is finished. He's humiliated. He knew that it, at this age in his life, it's not going to be easy for him to find another job, particularly at the pay scale of his old job. He probably could keep going for a while on unemployment benefits, but what about after they ran out? He was facing a financial disaster. Then he hit upon an ingenious plan. He was in charge of collecting the debts that were owed to his employer, And so he decided that he would call each of them in, in turn, and he would offer them a deal. He told them that he would be willing, that he would be leaving his present position to search out for new opportunities. And in order to keep their goodwill, he was offering them a deal that they would just not be able to refuse. If they paid their bills immediately, he was willing to settle for 60 cents on the dollar. Of course, he assured them with his fingers crossed that he'd been given authority by his employer to make this offer. And he hoped that they would remember this act of goodwill when they came to hit their company to submit his resume. He used his boss's money to be the goodwill for his possible future employers. This is the parable of the crooked manager in a modern setting. Now, did this man do wrong? The question brings us to the problem of this morning's text. Why did Jesus pick this man to be an example? The most common features of our Lord's parables is their shock value. They surprise and startle, and this parable certainly does that. I want us to look together as we first of all look at this parable as it's told in verses 1 through 8. He said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you will no longer be a steward. There is first of all the accusation. The main character in this story was a steward, which means he was an employee. He was responsible for using his master's business and his assets, and today we would probably call him a manager. He is, of course, to use that which has been entrusted to him to further his master's interests, not his own. This manager was accused of wasting his master's possessions. It's interesting that the word that is used here by Jesus was also used to describe how the prodigal son had squandered the inheritance he had received from his father. Although we do not know exactly what this manager had done, it would seem that the temptation was too great for him and he had begun to divert funds to his own purposes and pleasures. Apparently the man is guilty. We know that by the way he reacts and by secondly that Jesus later describes him in verse 8 as the dishonest steward or manager. We see in verse 2 that confrontation not surprisingly it is not too long until the master finds out what he's doing. His master summons him and he asks him for an inventory of his goods and an audit of his books. In modern terms, he is told, give me your records and clean out your desk. You're fired. But it does come as a shock to you, does it not, to consider that you are a steward. You are a steward. Nothing that you possess belongs to you. Everything you possess belongs to God. You do not own them. God does. In what respects, then, are Christian stewards? Obviously, as suggested by today's text, we are stewards of our material possessions. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, What makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive And now, if you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We are stewards of our material possessions. We are stewards of our time. Ephesians chapter 5 says in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. We are stewards of our time. We are also stewards of our gifts and abilities. First Peter four ten says, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we are stewards of the gospel. First Thessalonians 2 4 says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted. With the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. The man in the parable was in trouble. He had forgotten that stewardship involves not only responsibility and privilege, but it also involves accountability. Christians have a tendency to forget that one day an account will be given to the Lord the Apostle Paul warns all believers in 2nd Corinthians five ten, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad Now remember that is not an evaluation of whether or not we are to be saved that was determined by whether we have accepted the free gift of grace It is not for salvation that he's talking about, but for rewards, for faithfulness. Next, we look at the alternatives that he comes up with in verse 3, facing a future without position, the soon-to-be ex-manager contemplates his options. We're told in verse 3, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig... And I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. And when I am put out of stewardship, they may receive me into their house. What was an out-of-work manager to do? As he contemplated his options, he came to the conclusion that he was not physically able to do manual labor. And he was too proud to go on welfare. So he comes up with a scheme. In verse number four, he develops a plan to put himself on good terms with those who owe money to his master. To provide himself with friends who would help him when he was unemployed. Verse five, and so he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then another... How much do you owe? And so he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. While he is still able, he makes some quick deals. For example, he offered one man a 50% discount. And another, he offered a 20% discount. And he called every one of his master's debtors in. And he offered them a discount for immediate payment. Now, the commentators disagree on just how the manager went about creating this discount. Some speculate that he's merely giving up his commission on the transactions. One man in his book writes, What the steward is probably doing is discounting the face value of the notes by suspending the interest charges. Since those charges are not legal, Within the Jewish law, his master would have no ground of action against him. The debtors would accept the offer gladly. He therefore tied his master's hands effectively, staying within the bounds of loyalty, and ingratiated himself with people he wants to remember him kindly. How the manager went about giving that discount is not the point. Verse 8 is the commendation. In the first part of verse 8, Jesus gives the conclusion of the parable. Now, the disciples were probably waiting to hear how the crooked manager got what was coming to him. I think they were very surprised when Jesus said, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. I think there may have been some good natured laughter at having been caught off guard. By Jesus. Notice though it is the master in the parable who is commending this man, not Jesus. The master in this story does not say he is pleased by the steward's actions, but he is nonetheless impressed by his ingenuity. Alistair Begg tells a story of a couple who had their car stolen. In the morning, the car was returned with an apology and two tickets to the theater. The the note invited the couple to enjoy a night out as a way of apologizing for stealing their car. The couple took the tickets, went to the show, and when they returned home, their home had been cleaned out by the robbers who knew they were gone. Be honest. Aren't you a little impressed by the creativity of the thieves? It's obvious that Jesus is not commending this man for being underhanded or dishonest. But the shrewd manager is an example to us in that he saw clearly what the issues were. He cared about the income, the outcome and he also planned to do something about it. Now, let's look at the principles as they're applied. The second half of verse 8, Jesus now applies three principles found In this parable, first, we are called to use opportunity wisely. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting home. The idea that the followers of Christ are to be shrewd is a little unsettling. What does it mean to be shrewd? When we think of shrewd individuals, we think of the lawyer who knows all the loopholes and is careful to say just within the realm of what's legal. Not at all concerned about moral principle or true justice. Or we think of the businessman who knows how to exploit his competitor's weaknesses or his customer's ignorance. Good businessmen, either then or now, see the possibilities and they seize the opportunities in the world around them. They are even willing to sacrifice present comfort for the prospect of future rewards on their investments. If only Christians were as eager and ingenious in their attempt to spread the gospel as the sons of the world are in spreading their agenda... It is, in fact, a call to action. The agents of darkness in the world have slowly, deliberately, and steadily dismantled the morals of the Bible. They have normalized people living together outside of marriage. They have made homosexuality a cause worth fighting for. They've made abortion a matter of personal preference. They have called greed ambition and made it noble they have convinced people that saying Jesus is the only way to heaven is hate speech they have systematically and patiently sought to marginalize Christianity and its values what has the church done in response well when we get really riled up we talk mean we haven't done much at all so what does Jesus mean when he says and I say to you make friends For yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Certainly the point is not that you can buy your way into heaven. The only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Yet no doubt you have heard many times you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. There are only two things in this world that are eternal. The souls of men and women and the word of God. Don't miss the significance of the last part of verse 9. That when you fail, they will receive you into an everlasting home. I want you to underline that phrase, and when you fail. Notice it doesn't say, when it fails you, it says, when you fail. What he is referring to here is death, not debt. Paul reminds us in First Timothy 6, 7 for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will take nothing out. You are 100% certain to lose all the money you've accumulated. 100%. 100% certain to lose it. You are 100% certain to keep all the rewards that you have laid up in heaven. Shrewdness about money will force us to realize that although money can be powerful, it is limited it is temporary, and it is temporal. The only wealth that will endure is that which we have invested in others for the sake of Christ and for his gospel. When Jesus speaks of here being received or welcomed into heaven, I don't believe that here he's speaking of the welcome of the angels or the welcome to, that the Father gives us. Jesus is saying this welcome will be the people who re- Reached heaven because we have given to see that the gospel was spread. Will anyone hug your neck when you get to heaven and say, thanks for making sure I got here? There is a contemporary Christian song which starts out with a dream of a person being in heaven. And standing by the Lord when someone calls out their name and says, thank you. For giving to the Lord, for I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. Dr. James Dobson tells a story I think illustrates my point. He says, When my daughter Danae was a teenager, she came home one day and said, Hey, Dad, there's been a great new game out. I think you'll like it. It's called Monopoly. I just smiled. We gathered the family together and set up the board. didn't take long to figure out that Dad had played this game before. I soon owned all the best property, including boardwalk and park place. My kids were squirming, and I was loving every minute of it. About midnight, I foreclosed on the last property and did a little victory dance. My family wasn't impressed. They went to bed and made me put the game away. As I began putting all the money back in the box, an empty feeling came over me. Everything that I had accumulated was gone. The excitement over riches was just an illusion. And then it occurred to me, hey, this isn't just the game of Monopoly that has caught my attention. This is a game of life. You struggle to get ahead, but then one day, the game ends. It all goes back in the box. You lead this world with nothing, just like you came into it. We are also called to use our material possessions faithfully in verses 10 through 12. In the Bible, there seems to be two underlying principles concerning stewardship. First is the requirement stated in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found Faithful. The second is an explanation of the reward found in verse 10 of that same chapter. And he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit your trust the true riches? And if you have been faithful in that which is another man's, Who will give you what is your own? Mammon, which is sometimes translated money, refers not just to money, but to possessions. Actually, it refers to anything you can't take with you. To quote Barclay, When you get in heaven, what you get in heaven depends on how you use the things of earth. What you will be given as your very own will depend on how you have used the things of which you are only a steward. And then third, we are called to serve God exclusively. Verse 13 says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The point is that we have to keep our priorities straight. Wealth is to be used, it's not to be served. The truth about money is that we can either be stewards of it or we can be servants of it. The follower of Christ is called to yield himself totally to the service of God. There is no such thing as a part-time Christian. And third, this morning, the principles rejected Jesus had been speaking to the disciples, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders, scribes, had been listening. And their response is recorded in verse 14, and it's anything but spiritual. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They sneered at him. The Greek word means to turn up your nose. They turned up their nose at Jesus. These supposed men of God were greedy. Jesus calls them lovers of money. And to make worse, they justified their hypocrisy with Scripture. Not unlike the TV prosperity preachers of our day, they bent God's word to support their lifestyles, adding their own interpretation to what God has said. Let me close this morning with this story. A story is told of a man shipwrecked on a lonely, unknown island. To his surprise, he found that he was not alone. There was a large tribe of people who shared this island. To his pleasure, he discovered that they treated him very well. In fact, they placed him on a throne and catered to his every desire. He was delighted, but also perplexed. Why such royal treatment? And his ability to communicate increased, he discovered that the tribal custom was to choose a king for a year. Then when his term was finished, they would transport him to a particular idol island, that didn't have many resources and abandon him. Delight was now replaced by distress. And then he hit on a very shrewd plan. Over the next months, he sent members of the tribe to cl- clear the land, to till the island, and to plant crops. He then built a beautiful house. He furnished it and planted all kinds of things around it. He sent some chosen friends to live there and wait for him. And then when his time came for exile, he was ready. He was put in a place carefully prepared and full of friends, delighted to receive him. We're not headed to a deserted island, but we are headed to the Father's house. Yet the preparations we make here follow us. So how are you doing with your stewardship in the area of material possessions, in the area of time, how about gifts and abilities, in the area of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us not to come to the point that we think that everything that we possess belongs to us and we forget that we are stewards managers of what belongs to you. Well, Lord help us to get a grasp on that today to understand that we are stewards managers and that one day we will give an account of all those things that we have that have been placed in our hands. We want to be sending on ahead preparing to come into the father's house. Help us, Lord. If there's one here, Lord, that doesn't know you in a personal and intimate way, never stopped to repent of their sins and ask you to forgive them, then, Lord, we pray that they might understand that today and they might make that decision. Father, we just want to put ourselves at your disposal. We pray that your Holy Spirit would completely control these few moments as we respond to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.